You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 7th of November 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. It used to be said in British politics that general election campaigns change very little, that most people went into the election pretty well clear in their minds who they were going to vote for and they came out of it voting exactly the same way. This is clearly an election where everything is up in the air. The UK's election takes shape, but nobody can tell what it is. My guests, Lads Price and Yossi Meckelberg, will discuss the shifting political landscape. Plus, how long is too long? We will reflect on whether Benjamin Netanyahu's time as Israeli Prime Minister is finally up. And as Sweden's crown as the best non-English English-speaking nation slips, we'll ask how useful it is to be able to speak another language, English or otherwise. Plus... For decades now, since Denmark's Jorn Utzon threw down the design gauntlet with the 1957 Sydney Opera House, Aussie architects have proven their worth in forging the nation's finest buildings. Our design editor, Nolan Giles, looks at some of the best-designed museum spaces in Australia. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Lance Price, former Director of Communications at 10 Downing Street, and Yossi Meckelberg, Professor of International Relations at Regents University. Welcome both. Uh, We start here in the UK, where both major parties have launched their campaigns for the general election on December 12th. Both will already be reassuring themselves, almost certainly incorrectly, that things cannot get any worse. The Conservatives kicked things off with the resignation of a Cabinet Minister, Welsh Secretary Alan Cairns, And another of its most prominent figures, Jacob Rees-Mogg, suggesting that poor people who burn to death in badly designed buildings have only themselves to blame. Labour saw the resignation of their deputy leader, Tom Watson, and a long-serving former MP, Ian Austin, urging everyone to vote Conservative on the grounds of the unfitness for office of Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Lance, they've they've both hit the ground running here, haven't Haven't they? Haven't they? A magnificent (laughs) start for both the... For both the main parties, it used to be said in British politics that um, uh, general election campaigns change very little, that most people went into the election pretty well clear in their minds who they were going to vote for and they came out of it voting exactly the same way. Um, This is clearly an election where everything is up in the air um, and I think it's a product of the fact that the two big parties are actually in turmoil. I mean, they're doing their best like ducks to sort of show on the surface that everything's calm and they're heading in the right direction. But this this has been the thing of the last three years, hasn't it? Because if you look back over British history, it's far from unusual for one of the two main parties to be having some sort of nervous breakdown. But I think this is the first time they've both done it at once. Exactly. They've both done it at once and they're both offering themselves to the electorate as in theory, the only two uh, parties who could form a government after the election. And the poor voters are scratching their heads saying, well, look, you know, neither of you seem to be in any fit state to uh, look after your own um, uh, internal affairs, never mind the affairs of the of the country. Um, so it puts, I think, puts voters in a very difficult position about wh- how, where to go. And, and Equally, both parties appear to be um, pushing out their own moderates. So the uh, more centrist uh, candidates, um, whether Labour or Conservative, uh, either 
feel obliged to stand down or are being forced out of their respective parties. Um, and so we are going into a very, very polarised general election. Uh, Yossi, if, if this is day one, would you like to hazard a guess as to what week five will be like? Uh, I wonder if there will be any candidate left <laughs> if, this, if this is day one. But I think it's very difficult, you know, to control the media, especially when you have social media and so many channels. And you can't, and you probably know as director of communication that you probably pull your hand and said, who is going to say the next fully things that it will take hours of our time or days in our time just to mitigate something like Chris Mogg, which is way more serious, when you basically blame poor people, especially after they died for not having judgment and actually not listening to, to the, the, the fire brigade. So now you're not listening even to the authorities, just with expertise. I can't think about something more foolish to say that, than that. And then there is, you know, events, my dear, events. Who knows what's going to happen <laughs> next? You know, who is, you know, intervening in this court cases, the case of, of the Welsh secretary and so on and so forth. So, it's, it's about managing this. Not that it's not going to happen in the next five weeks because sure more things will come out and I'm sure both parties and all parties are storing certain things one against the other. It's about timing and how cleverly they are going to manage it but also to be very tough. Like, for instance, there was an opportunity for Boris Johnson and the party really to do something with Rismog and even fire him from government. Tell him enough is enough because this is going to hurt them, I think, in... in uh, in the election, but this is lack of leadership, and I think more than what he said, the lack of leadership might help them in the election. Um, Lance, what, one of the events uh, currently con- confronting your former party, Labour, uh, as we were discussing, was this uh, somewhat bomb-throwing interview given this morning by Ian Austin, the former MP. Now, Labour obviously would not have been counting on Ian Austin's full-throated support, but ha- had something vaguely similar have occurred on your watch. How worried would you be about it? Would you shrug it off as just sort of former party MP, you know, known malcontent deciding to grab his bit of the spotlight? Or would you be worried that this is the kind of thing that does cut through? I think you would be worried. Um, And Ian Austin's a very old friend of mine. I've known him for many, many, many years. And I think it's a very, very sad day that it's come to this, that he feels he has to uh, not only uh, stand down and and oppose the Labour leadership, which he's been doing for some time, but also say that people should vote uh, Conservative. Um, I think if I was being brutal about it, if I was sitting in, in, in in a party headquarters, I would say, well, you know, what kind of constituency does this guy have? What kind of support does he have? How high profile is he? How many people's minds is he going to change by saying what he does? Um, And I think because he has been such now a long-standing critic of Corbyn and has never pulled his punches in saying that he thinks Corbyn is unfit, um, that probably will give the current Labour leadership some confidence that they can ride the storm. The same is, it should be said, true on the the government side of the House as well at the moment. There there have been, Yossi, I think it's fair to say, a number of Conservative grandees or Conservative voices who, if they haven't actually come straight out and said Boris Johnson is is no fit character to be Prime Minister, they have been notably unenthusiastic about the prospect. I mean, again, is, is that a function, do you think, of the absence of leadership you were talking about earlier? Yeah, I think it's a zeitgeist. A lot of people don't find their home, political home, where traditionally they they used to be. And it worries how many members of parliament said not neither this party nor the other, the movement between parties. Maybe Brexit actually is sort of a litmus test for all of it, whether the British 
political system is fit for purpose. And it needs a bit of an earthquake to create new parties, moving between parties. What do you actually stand, stand for? But the fact that, for instance, many women decided, female members of parliament decide that they can stay at all in politics. It's too scary. And they are threatened. That's, that's something we should worry. Is it going to be a parliament that is inclusive and representative in this kind of environment? But the fact that, you know, some don't feel that they're kind of former home or this is becoming their former home. And I think this this interview this morning with Ian Austin that said categorically, this is not my Labour Party, not where I spend most of my political life, should worry the Labour Party the same way that it's worrisome in the Conservative Party that people don't find that this is what represents. It went so much to the extreme and radical that it's less inclusive. And is politics becoming less inclusive, which might push even more to the radical elements within the society? Uh, Lance, there's been a, a lot of fairly convincing research done suggesting that the old tribal political loyalties that have defined this country, mostly but not exclusively Labour and Conservative, have been subsumed very quickly uh, in terms of political identity by whether a person considers themselves remain or leave. Uh, with, with that thought in mind, what do you make of what's being called the Unite to Remain Alliance? This is a, a gathering packed by the Greens, uh, Plaid Cymru in Wales and the Liberal Democrats to step aside in some seats and wave each other through if they think that's the likeliest to get one of the Remain parties into the Commons? It's a short-term fix for the problem that they're facing in a general election under first-past-the-post and without what should have happened, which is the substantial realignment of politics, which has to happen outside of an election campaign. You can't do mm. that in the middle of an election campaign. Um, I think it's unfortunate, of course, that nobody in the Labour Party is involved in this. So it means that you have this so-called Remain Alliance, uh, which will only influence a tiny handful of seats. But they are still standing candidates, one of them from one of these Remain Alliance parties, against some very, very, very anti-Brexit Labour MPs in some very marginal constituencies. So um, had it been a genuine Remain Alliance, it would have included those very powerful voices um, uh, opposing Brexit within the Labour Party, and it doesn't. So that causes a problem. Uh, and the real issue is that there are so many people going into this general election campaign who feel that they don't have a team on the on the pitch, that they, uh, because whether it's the moderates in the Labour Party or those um, appalled by the way in which Boris Johnson is taking the Conservative Party have failed to engineer any kind of genuine fundamental realignment of politics means that people are left as they always are under first past the post with a binary choice of who they want to be Prime Minister and it's a binary choice which many people and I would count myself amongst them think that both alternatives are unacceptable. Lance Price and Yossi Meckelberg will be back with more from you both in just a moment but first Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. The top American diplomat in Ukraine says that President Donald Trump had a clear understanding that military aid was dependent on Ukraine agreeing to investigate Trump's election rival Joe Biden. The comments by Bill Taylor contradict the president and add further pressure to the ongoing impeachment proceedings. Germany's defense minister says the country will meet its NATO spending target by 2031, despite an agreed deadline with allies of 2024. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer said that NATO is and will remain the anchor of European security. 
And more than half of Australia's energy supplies were generated by green sources this week. Ideal weather conditions contributed to the achievement. Observers note that more work is needed to bolster green supplies at other times. The major milestone comes as the nation seeks to reduce its reliance on coal power. Those are some of the headlines we are following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Yossi Meckelberg and Lance Price. Sticking with the theme of somewhat undignified political circuses and or a potential glimpse of the UK's future, we go now to Israel, where two general elections in the last six months have failed to furnish a government. One suggestion for breaking the deadlock is a direct election for Prime Minister to be contested by the just-about incumbent Benjamin Netanyahu and his rival, former Israel Defence Forces Chief Benny Gantz. There appears to be in the Knesset a growing consensus that this might be preferable to subjecting weary voters to the third general election in less than a year. Uh, Yossi, this isn't from entirely out of left field. Israel actually used to do this at elections in the late 1990s. Why did they stop doing it? Yeah, this is the recollection 2.0 because we've been there in the 1990s and the idea, oh, we are fragmented, so there are too many parties and the threshold was very low at the time, less than 2%. Let's have a prime minister. But they forgot two things. A, if you make such constitutional changes, you need also to change the power of the prime minister if you want the prime minister <laughs> to have power. So he remained with the same powers as before, but elected. So you got a result. But the election for parliament, for the Knesset, didn't change. So the same fragmentation. So Ukraine, we're talking about ducks. They were d- lame ducks as prime ministers. So it didn't improve anything, so they resort back to revert it to the old system. You need to change... One is constitutional change. There's no written constitution, but to change the constitutional arrangement between the elections of the parliament and the prime minister, and also how you, you, you divide the power between them. What The second thing is not, not addressing why this fragmentation, where it comes from. And Israel society, for historical reasons, for sociological reasons, is fragmented by nature. And many of the parties there are more uh, lobby groups, pressure groups, than catch-all parties. And this one needs to be addressed. And never address this issue, and they die to play with the electoral system. I don't think without addressing this, the separation of power properly, if they want to do that. And... Education, basically, that election is not get exactly who you want in parliament, but one that actually provides you with reasonable, I'm not talking about good governance, but reasonable (laughs) governance, this can make a difference. But just to follow that point up, Yossi, is it your perception that those parties, and you're quite right to say in Israel that they they often end up defaulting to this image as, as sectarian lobby groups, that that's becoming more entrenched? Do you think going back, say 30, 40 years, they used to be better at realising we do actually have to figure out how to govern together and work out what we do agree on rather than focusing on what we don't agree on. Yes, because if you look the early years of, of, of the state, the bigger party or the bigger will get around the 50s member of parliament and you need 61 for a majority. Get, and then you need one, maybe two parties to form a coalition. Now it's down to the 30s. So it means just to begin, you need another two, three, sometimes four parties to form a coalition, which makes negotiation almost impossible. So the idea that if you won't get out of election, the outcome won't be of a big party, which is in the 40-something, close to 50, and then you need partners. 
a bit like in, in Germany, then this fragmentation, you give too much power to small parties. You might say it's a celebration of democracy, of representation, <laughs> but it's not celebration of good governance. Uh, Lance, is what is basically going on here, by which I guess I'm asking, is this entire process being driven by the inability or unwillingness of one man, i.e. Benjamin Netanyahu, to accept that the game is up and it's, it, it's time he took his victory lap and got off. Well, you can understand why he would cling on to power and and, uh, prime ministers who find their authority ebbing away do tend to do that. I mean, I'm thinking of Gordon Brown after the election in in 2010 when he had clearly lost the election, but he was still in Downing Street for another week or so afterwards. Um, So I think uh, perhaps... Netanyahu would feel that he would be letting himself down, letting his party down if he gave up too easily. Um, I mean, I don't quite understand, and Joshua much better in a much better position to explain this, why it isn't possible for there to be some sort of grand coalition between the two bigger parties in order to form a stable government, given that instability uh, that is clearly damaging to the country um, continues with without that. Um, and if that meant Netanyahu uh, stepping down, which I presume it would have to do, then that might be his last gift as Prime Minister. He's been Prime Minister for a long time now. Um, and there comes a point, and 10 years is often it, actually, psychologically, uh, when uh, Prime Ministers have passed their sell-by date. And maybe Netanyahu has, has to recognise that. I mean, Yossi, it is not just a sell-by date issue. Is there an aspect of this that Netanyahu is calculating that the longer he stays Prime Minister, the less time he might be obliged to spend in the clink? Exactly. The, the, the problem with Netanyahu that the victory lap might be in the outside court of a prison. And, 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 and this is not a victory lap that any prime minister would like to have. And I think this is the issue. It clings not only to political power, but stay out of court. All the idea for him was to form a government, then pass legislation that officials, while in their position, won't be able to be indicted or face court even if they are indicted. And then he stay another few years and maybe then he will manipulate the system to become the president when President Rivlin uh, steps down in two years. Then he stay another seven years. By then he will be 80 and he will remember all this corruption allegation too. So there is, there is some... <laughs> plan in this madness of what he's trying to do, mainly avoid. So it would have been easier had it's been just a case of political power. The minute that it moved into the court cases, the corruption cases, we are talking about something else. And if anyone watched the Knesset debate yesterday, in which the justice minister basically exposed uh, evidence from police investigation and threatening, like the mafia, a state witness, you see how low is Israeli politics sunk in, in recent weeks and months. Uh, just before we move off Israel, Yossi, one other Israeli story I did want to ask you about. This is uh, the approval of plans uh, for a cable car over the old city of yeah. Jerusalem. Is there any way that this is not just going to become a massive thing? You know, I'm also but worried when religious places are becoming about Disneyland, you know, let's have cable car, God knows what the next ride they're going to do around the holy places, especially this is such a sensitive issue. Mm. It has to be negotiated. And when one day there is, they want to be cable car, I don't know what's going to, to, to happen. Leave it for that. The minute any change there, any alter of the status quo can lead to riots, can lead to violence, because no one trusts anyone. 
So I would leave it. it. Again, in principle, it might bring more tourists. It might be good for both sides. This is the Palestinians. It will more tourists. It means more, 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 more money to the to the traders in in the market. But it will be perceived and also be used a change of the status quo, which in this sensitive place, I would refrain from doing. Okay, well, finally today on our news panel, we go to Sweden, where there is an unverified amount of teeth gnashing at the tidings that Swedes are no longer rated the world's best non-native English speakers, at least according to the English Proficiency Index of Education First. The Swedes have lost their crown, or in Swedish crown, I looked that up, uh, to the <laughs> Netherlands, uh, making, up, making up the minor placings are Norway, Denmark and Singapore. Um, Lance, like, like you, I, I was raised on an English-speaking island and, and I am perpetually embarrassed when travelling to places that are not English-speaking islands about how easy people are with not usually just one extra language but quite often several and the fact that nobody even thinks it's a big deal. How big an advantage, or actually how big a disadvantage, do you think is a, an essentially monoglot population in today's world? I think it's just sad, actually. Um, there's no doubt that English has won the sort of language culture war internationally and is the international language. There is an argument that if you're only going to speak one language, it's the one you should speak. Absolutely. I mean, and I think e even the Chinese would probably agree with that in terms of the international mm. um, uh, uh, strength of, of, of English as, as a language. I mean, I speak as somebody who was a kid. I really struggled with languages. All my worst grades at school were in languages. Um, I tried in German and had to give up. I persevered with French and for a Brit, speak reasonable French. Um, but, you know, would, would, would it really, would my life really be so bad if I couldn't even speak French? I don't know. I mean, you know, we are very privileged as English speakers to be able to go out mm. there and lord it over everybody else. Um, but uh, do we really have a right to do that? I, I just think it's a shame. I, I mean, I speak as somebody who... I didn't really even get a chance to struggle with languages at school in Australia. I was barely exposed to any, to none at all, in fact, till my second year of high school. And but then, now you'd be learning Cantonese, presumably. Well, it's, it's still not happening. It should be. Australian kids, uh, and it's a, it's a perpetual bugbear of mine, should be learning to speak Chinese and Korean and Japanese and Indonesian and Vietnamese because that's where we are in the world. And I also think an acquaintance with at least one indigenous language wouldn't do us any harm either. But, Yossi, this is your cue to embarrass everybody here by telling us how many languages as you speak? No, not as many as I should, but I studied, you know, obviously I can do a bit of English, <laughs> <laughs> part of Hebrew, and studied German at university because I had to take, you know, a third language when I did my MA in international relations. So we, we had, to, you know, to learn these languages and which obviously it, it's useful. And, you know, at, at my university here at Regents, we encourage students and a lot of them actually come with two, three languages and encourage them to take more, for instance, Cantonese, Mandarin. Japanese, they go sometimes for a year and study another language because if we want to develop the next generation of global citizens and global leaders. And you mentioned the Netherlands. I just came back from the Netherlands yesterday attending a conference which was all in English. It was not in Dutch. And all the Dutch lecturers mm. and speakers, I used to do some training in the Netherlands, training the Dutch army, believe it or not, in some <laughs> Middle East simulation game. And they had to take take the simulation game all in English because obviously I don't speak Dutch, not many do, but they spoke fluent, fluent English and you could do it with them with French and many of them with German. And it makes more international, to be fair, you know, when you have an empire in a big country and a major 
trade, trading country, the language influences others. If you are, for instance, in Israel, how useful is my Hebrew if I start speaking here or in many other places? <laughs> the same with Dutch. So you see the balance of power of languages is quite obvious. But I think more and more, if you're thinking about the young generations of global citizens, global leaders, I think we'd expect them to know at least two, three languages. Just as a final thought on this, lads, very quick one to bring us back to where we came in, uh, which is the UK's election. Do you think in the UK this this ship has sailed as a political issue? If you decided, and actually I think Boris Johnson attempted this when he was culture secretary or culture minister or whatever it was to try and revive a certain amount of enthusiasm, shadow culture minister he would have been, uh, revive a certain amount of enthusiasm for languages, especially Latin in his case. Um, is any a parent still interested in this anymore? I think so. I mean, I think the attempt to go back to traditional forms of teaching, which Michael Gove pursued very uh, aggressively when he he was education secretary, does have uh, some resonance. And I think there are teachers who would like the idea of going back to teaching by rote, learning by rote, uh, and having languages, possibly even Latin amongst them. And I think my, you know, uh, if it was up to Boris Johnson, all kids would be learning Latin. And I think that's probably one step too far. Lance Price and Yossi Meckelberg, thanks for joining us. In a moment, the design of museums down under. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles, considers the state of museums back in his home country and mine, Australia. Sat in the shade under the cantilevering roof of Brisbane's world-class gallery of modern art, surveying the surrounding sun-drenched subtropical flora is as good a spot as any to reflect on the thoughtfulness in design of Australia's cultural institutions. The quality of lead architects and local Queenslanders Kerry and Lindsay Clare's Gallery of Modern Art Design marries harmoniously with its neighbouring 1975 modernist marble, the Queensland Art Gallery. Again, this much-loved design came from a local master architect, Robin Gibson, who chose to embrace the shrubbery that would clamber across a sunken, pebble-dashed concrete building. For decades now, since Denmark's Jorn Utzon threw down the design gauntlet with the 1957 Sydney Opera House, Aussie architects have proven their worth in forging the nation's finest buildings. A big reason, as our Brisbane examples illustrate, is their understanding of local context and climate. Which is why it saddens me so much when I receive another press release declaring that a big-name international architect has been commissioned to design an important new Australian building. While I'm certainly not taking aim at today's news that Japan's Pritzker Prize winners SANA have broken ground on an extension to Sydney's Art Gallery of New South Wales, I can't say I'm particularly excited by the prospect either. Sydney's track record with Starkitects includes uninspiring efforts from Frank Gehry and Rogers, Sturk, Harbour and Partners. They both feel out of place in the Harbour City. I'd much rather back a local who's cut their teeth working with Australia's unique and often difficult home terrain and weather conditions. Developers down under, who see greener grass elsewhere, 
might be wise to spend a little bit more time with me in the shade of the Gallery of Modern Art in Brisbane. For Monocle, I'm Nolan Giles. That was Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles, and that's all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>